You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me today. Every day, more IDF soldiers are falling in the Gaza Strip. And you'd like to know that the heads of the IDF military are doing their utmost so that our boys don't get killed. You'd like to think that their number one priority when going to war is to keep our soldiers safe from harm's way. But no, it's not so. A lot of these casualties could have been avoided. Let's say that we have no choice, that the IDF has to send in ground troops in order to take over the area. Maybe that's unavoidable. Well, if they have to do it, they should have flattened Gaza a lot more than they did. And if we wanted to really win the war and prevent the death of Jewish soldiers, you don't call for a ceasefire. That's what gave the enemy a chance to regroup and to refuel. And we gave them oxygen and more fuel and humanitarian aid. Who fights a war like that? It's like someone goes to war and he has the advantage over his enemy, let's say. So he gives his enemy a gun and he says, here, take the gun. And now we're on an even playing field. That's how we're fighting this war. And that's the military leadership we have. Jonathan Pollard has said for a long time now, it's not just judicial reform that we need. Much more than that, we need military reform. There has to be an overhaul of the military. But the thing is, these guys stay around forever. It doesn't matter how much they fail. It doesn't matter that October 7th happened under their watch. They remain in their fat positions, Gallant and Gantz. In any other country, they would have been court-martialed and replaced. You know, if you know a little history, it was very common to change generals in the middle of a war. In the American Civil War, for instance, the North kept losing to the South. And Lincoln, he kept changing generals until he found the right one. And Ulysses Grant was the right one. And then the North started to win. It's only in this country that the same failures, they continue forever and ever. Nobody's accountable. They're never replaced. And that's because here it's like an old boys club. You know, each one supports the other one, just like in the judiciary. It's just something about these Israeli politicians. They don't go away. All the Israeli political figures, they just don't go away ever. I mean, Shimon Peres, he would go away. How long did he live? About as long as Kissinger. Ehud Barak keeps coming back. Israel recycles their leaders like they recycle bottles. And the root of their failure is that they're westernized. They don't understand the Arab world. What happened on October 7th for the Arab was a theological victory. For them, it was Islam defeated the little Satan, Israel. They're looking to restore the honor to the Arab world. That's what happened for them on October 7th. All the rapings and the beheadings and the torture and the cutting of limbs. For the Arab, that's part of the course. Islam is used to that. That's nothing for them. Look back at 1929 in the pogroms in Hebron, in the Jewish quarter in 1938. You'll see the same descriptions of sexual organs being cut off and rapes. It's not a chidush for them. But for them, October 7th was a tremendous victory. Something that hasn't happened in the last hundred years. From the point of view of Islam, what they did is epic. They conquered Jewish towns in the South. That never happened before. They conquered IDF army bases. You know what that means? The invincible IDF, they took over army bases. Egypt never did that. Syria never did that. And they did. And they're martyrs. For them, this is a huge achievement. For them, having tens of thousands of 
Casualties means nothing to them. It's less than a hangnail for them. And what you have to notice is how the entire Arab world stands behind them. The Egyptians, Qatar, they all want a ceasefire because everybody knows that if we have a ceasefire, then they won. That's a victory in the Arab world. Delic, that's fuel for them because they can always rebuild Gaza. The Arabs worldwide, they're zillionaires and they've been funding Hamas for years. Last week, they found 5 million shekels in a suitcase. That's nothing for them. They have trucks of money being brought in. Whatever we destroyed in Gaza, they can rebuild it bigger and better. Because for the Arab world, Gaza and the Hamas, that's an investment for them. It's an investment. An investment that yields them good returns. Look at those returns they got. What results? And so what has to be understood is the Gaza Strip, it's not some territory. It's a shaliach. It's an emissary of the Arab world. And now it's become a successful one. It's proven itself. And so the big Arab money is getting pumped into Gaza because the Arab world knows that that's an investment that pays dividends. And so ask any Arab in Israel, outside of Israel, if the Hamas is an organization that has to be wiped out. No Arab will say yes because Hamas is their shaliach. No Muslim will oppose them. And by the way, that goes for the nice Arab states that signed the Abraham Accords. Because even if they wanted to condemn the Hamas, the Arab masses, the Arabs in the streets, would never let them. Because the Hamas are their heroes. For them, the head of the Hamas, Sinwar, he's the second coming of Saladin. That's what they think. And anyone who doesn't realize that that's the Arab mindset, he just brings upon us the next massacre. And so the heads of the military, Gantz and Gallant and Eisenkart, they'll never be able to give the answer because they don't know the problem. I want to play a Twitter feed that came from this guy, Sebastian Gorka. He was in the Trump administration. He's a respectable guy. And he viewed the film of the October 7th massacre that the media released, that the Israelis released, and some media people saw it. And he described what he saw. And then after describing what he saw, this is what he said. I will never stop talking about what I saw today. And I have one message for the Prime Minister of Israel, for the IDF and every Israeli. Kill them all. Every one of those bastards. Every rapist, every grandmother killer, every baby murderer. Kill them all. All. You know, sometimes I just want to know, why is it that this guy expresses how I feel more than any rabbi I can find? That is, why can't I find a Jewish leader that speaks this way or thinks this way? This is the most normal reaction you can have. Do you know that hundreds of people are laying in hospital beds in Israel without their limbs or maimed in all kinds of different ways from October 7th? We should all be reacting like Sebastian Gorka did. And if you say, well, that's not the Jewish way to be so full of hate and to be so unhinged. That's not true. Not true. Sometimes you have to hate. And to do so, you have to work yourself up to hate. You have to psych yourself up for it. The great Jewish sage, Rabbeinu Yonah, he says the following. Twice a day we say Kriyat Shema, where we say, V'hafta Hashem Elokecha, 
We have to love Hashem with all your heart and with all your soul. So what does it mean with all your heart? So Rabbeinu Yonah says like this, that you have to love Hashem with the Yetzir Atov and your Yetzir Both the Yetzir Atov and the Yetzir are found in the heart. With your whole heart, the Yetzir Atov, of course, is the good inclination and the Yetzir is that evil inclination. And how do you obey Hashem? How do you serve God with your evil inclination? So Rabbeinu Yonah describes it like this, that when you are cruel to your enemy and you kill your enemy, you are serving Hashem with your Yetzahara. That's Bechol Avcha, with the Yetzirah Tov. That's when you're being nice and with the Yetzahara. In other words, that feeling you get when you're really angry and you want to kill somebody, right? We get that feeling sometimes, right? Well, God created that feeling in us, that impulse for a reason. So you can direct it for killing the wicked. You see, if you're being a nice guy, you're using your Yetzirah Tov all the time. How can you kill somebody? How are you going to burn out the evil, the bad guy, with the Yetzirah Tov? You have to use your Yetzirah. You have to tap into your darker instincts and channel all that towards the righteous cause of purging the Hamas, the evil. So yeah, that is the mentality you have to have. Kill them all, to quote Sebastian Gorka Shlita. I'm waiting for one Jewish leader to speak that way. That's not the mentality of the Israeli leadership. Their whole thing is about finding the hostages. We got to save the hostages. That's become the burning issue when it comes to Gaza. Plus, we have the humanitarian crisis to worry about. We don't want to kill too many civilians. In what wars ever did anybody even take account of civilians? Does anybody know how many civilians were killed in Vietnam or, or Dresden for that matter? Nobody was counting even. It's not even an issue. How many civilians were killed in Afghanistan or any other war in Iraq? Who cares? It's not recorded because nobody gives a damn. Harry Truman didn't give a damn when he bombed Nagasaki. All of a sudden, when it comes to Israel, you have this civilian casualty count. Just like you had that COVID death count running in the news all the time. So those become the two burning issues. Innocent casualties and saving the hostages. Gee, and I thought we're trying to win a war over here. And so no wonder soldiers are getting killed every day because we're fighting this war with one hand behind our back. We have one eye on the hostages, another half eye on the innocent civilians. Is it a wonder then that casualties are falling every day? Now, something that's become a big news story and an issue since the war started is what is called settler violence. Because the settlers are trying to fight back, trying to avoid another October 7th for them, you get in this spin of settler violence. It's constantly in the newspapers. For instance, this was the headline last week in ABC News. Palestinians flee villages as settler violence surges in the West Bank amid the war. And the article says that about a dozen Palestinian villages have emptied since the October 7th Hamas attack. Halavai. And the newsrooms are now full of stories of how the settlers are what they call taking advantage of the war and the chaos to pressure the Arab villages to evacuate. And the Israeli leftist traders, they pile on. For instance, you have Gideon Levy, a journalist from Haaretz, and he writes like this. I think that the settlers right now are in an orgy. They understand that this is their money time. This is their big opportunity. So that's the spin. As mayors of Yudan Shomron communities are trying to approve 
security budgets for their settlements and trying to procure weapons for the local response teams of these communities. What does the narrative become? Settler violence is on the rise. Instead of explaining that maybe the settlers are trying to defend themselves from the next massacre coming their way and they're gearing up for it. But I am not one of those who think that it's good Hasbara explaining to the world that we settlers are not violent. That's what most of the Hasbara does today, that we're just regular people, we're fine human beings, us settlers are being villainized unfairly. That's also a mistake to portray us as these nice, wonderful people. Our only hope is that the Arabs really think we're the monsters that the world media makes us out to be. That is the best deterrent we have from another October 7th massacre in Judea and Samaria. The IDF doesn't scare anybody, but the settlers do. You don't want a reputation of being good and nice. A good reputation is actually bad. You know what happens to nice people? People who are nice to the Arabs? Think of it. If you're an Arab terrorist who wants to kill Jews, will you be more comfortable infiltrating a settlement of crazy settlers with earlocks and guns? Or would you prefer to attack Jews who are peacenik, lovey-dovey types? Those are the places that got massacred on October 7th. They were the biggest Arab lovers in Israel. The Arabs know they can just waltz into those places and murder with the utmost confidence. They might think twice before attacking a yeshuv like Yitzhar or Tepuach, where they think crazy people live there. They hate us all the same, but they would much rather go to the nice Yefei Nefesh types because they know if they're caught in Yitzhar, for instance, then they'll be hanging up from the highest pole. But that's not the point, really. The point is that as the settlements try to prepare for another Arab onslaught and try to become a little more independent, because we all realize that the IDF can't really protect these communities, and it's the response teams, the local response teams, that have to do it, and we're basically on our own. And so the settlements have become more independent, attaining drones and other equipment, and that's why you have this running narrative of settler violence, because the left and the Jew haters don't want us to defend ourselves even. Moving on to the Parshas we've been reading about Yosef and the brothers entering Egypt, this is Israel's first Gullus. The Egyptian exile is the prototype exile. We see that the Jews were welcomed. They got first-class treatment at the beginning. And in a few generations, they found themselves enslaved. And in Parshat Vayigash, that we read this past Shabbat, we see that Jacob and sons, they go down to Egypt. The verses list each tribe going down. And then when you go to Parshat Shmot, the very beginning of it opens up with the Jews again going down to Egypt. These are the children of Israel who came to Egypt. That's how we open Parshat Shmot. Hey, but they already were in Egypt. We saw that in Parshat Vayigash. And so what's going on is that in Parshat Vayigash that we read, that began the exile. We went down to Egypt. And Parshat Vayichi, that's almost kind of parenthetical. It's taking us back to the family issues, the blessings of Jacob to his children. It's more on the private level. And then you go to Parshat Shmot, and that picks up where we left off from Vayigash. We're going back to that exile process where Jacob and sons are going down, and they're going to be in bondage very quickly as we get into Parshat Shmot, first couple of verses. They're already in bondage. And I want to focus now on the final verse in Parshat Vayigash, because that sets up the whole exile situation in one verse, 
it explains what led to the bondage in Egypt. And this is what it says. And the children of Israel, they dwelled in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they grasped onto it. They grabbed it. They seized it. is to seize. They grasped onto it. And their population multiplied rapidly. And I want to bring now the magnificent commentary on this verse by the Kli Yakar. And this is what the Kli Yakar says. That this verse levels an accusation against the children of Israel. Again, we're talking about the last verse in Parshat Vayigash, Vayeshev Yisrael Be'eretz Mitzrayim, that they dwelt in the land of Egypt, Be'eretz Goshen, in Goshen, Vayechazuba, and they grasped it or they took possession of it. That verse is an accusation against the children of Israel. Because Hashem had decreed upon them previously that your descendants will be foreigners. They'll be gerim. They'll be temporary sojourners in the land of Egypt. They'll be temporary. But they wish to be toshavim. They wanted to be permanent residents. That's why the verse is Yisrael They're yeshaving over there. They're dwelling in it. They're making it their home. That wasn't supposed to be. And so the verse blames him for this residence. And they sought possession of a land that's not theirs. That's what the verse means. They held on to it. And the Klihayaka continues. And they so completely settled in it. So much so that they did not wish to leave Egypt. And God had to take them out with a strong hand. That is, he had to force them out. And those who did not wish to leave died in the three days of darkness. So there you have it. Our ancestors foretelling our own story. We turned Egypt into our home. We had our own Eretz Goshen, just like every Jew has their own borough park or whatever ghetto they set up. But what does the Kliya Yakar say? They sought possession of a land that's not theirs. They thought it was home. They chazuba, they got cozy in it. They snuggled up in Eretz Goshen, going to Shul and eating Shulent. They forgot it's the exile. And that's one of the reasons I hate the word diaspora. You know, there are a lot of terms people don't like using, like the West Bank. People don't like that term. It makes it, it makes it seem that it doesn't belong to us. I don't mind West Bank. You got the East Bank of the Jordan. You got the West Bank. Two banks to the Jordan, and they're both ours. That's all right. You got the West Bank. You got the East Bank. Some people don't like the word mitnachlim. That's the word for settlers. What's wrong with mitnachlim? It's a great word. It comes from the word mitnachel, nachalot. A nachalah is the portion of land that belongs to your tribe. Mitnachel is not a bad word. The term that I can't stand is diaspora. What the heck is that anyway? Who came up with that word? What a mealy-mouthed word. It somehow puts a hechsher on the exile. It's not the exile anymore. It's the diaspora. See, if you call it the exile, that means you're doing something wrong. What do you mean the exile? That means I'm in the exile. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not home. If you call it the exile, that means I'm not in the place I'm supposed to be. I've been exiled from my home. That's what chutzlar always was for the Jew. It's the galus. 
Oh, don't call it gullus. We'll call it diaspora. And that somehow makes it all okay. Well, this Kliya Yakar is telling us that this exile of Egypt, where four-fifths of the Jews perished in, it opened up the same way as every exile. At first, they let the Jews in. And the Jews had it good for lots of generations. And then stuff happened, and it wasn't so good. Because the very word exile, galut, is the very antithesis to geula, to redemption. You have galut and geula. Exile, redemption. So if you're in the exile, you're going against the redemption. We forgot that the exile was meant to be a punishment. You know, it says that there are three things that Hashem created that he regrets. One is Yishmael. He regrets that he created Yishmael. You can understand why. Another is the Sahara, that he created the evil inclination. That's understandable because all the bad things we do, it's because of the evil inclination. And another thing he regrets is the exile, that he created the exile. Now, why would Hashem regret that he created the exile? After all, the exile was established as a punishment for the Jewish people. But why does Hashem regret it, so to speak? Because the Jews ended up not viewing it as a punishment. They look at the place where they live as their home instead of Israel being home. And so the exile, it didn't serve its purpose. That's why Hashem regrets he created the exile. And so the message to all the Jews out there is, come home real soon. That's it for me. If you want to hear more, we have a new website called LennyGoldberg.com, LennyGoldberg.com. And you'll have a link to my Bible classes, to other Jewish Truth Bomb episodes, and lots of interesting articles, and Rabbi Kahana books for sale as well. See you next week.